Welcome to All Saints Community Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus. Our desire for you as you listen is to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit as we read the scriptures and to be mobilized to actively bring God's kingdom to the earth. For more information on who we are, visit allsaintsokc.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at ASCCOKC. All right, let's look at Acts 13. Last week, we got three verses in. And it was so good, I must confess, that this chapter is so good that we kind of got stalled a little bit. Who wasn't here last week? Let me just see. It's not a shame thing. It's just I'm wondering. I'm going to go ahead and read the passage again. All right, so Acts 13. 1 to 12, and we're looking at Antioch, this church, Antioch in Syria, a spirit-led church on mission with Jesus. And I said this last week, that this is a model early church, a first century church, and we're looking at seven characteristics or traits of a healthy church. And we're going to see that this is a, a worshipful and missional church. And our roots go back to this church. In some sense, this is like a great, 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 great grandparent here, the Antioch church. That wasn't enough greats in there, but way, way back. This is one of the churches. It's kind of a cradle church where it was all born and all started with broken people like us in a very pagan city. And the Lord picked that city. And thankfully, the word of God gives us a model like this that we can look and learn and pray into becoming a church like this. I'm going to read it again. Acts 13, 1 to 12. And again, bring your Bible. Bring your Bible or grab a pew Bible. We want to look at this together, study it together. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a member of the court of Herod, the ruler, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. At verse 4, this is what we're going to dig into today. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John also to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they met a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and wanted to hear the word of God. But the magician, Elymas, for that is the translation of his name, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? 
And now listen, the hand of the Lord is against you, and you will be blind for a while, unable to see the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he went about groping for someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was astonished at the teaching about the Lord. Friends, this is the word of God. Man, so we looked at the first three characteristics found in verses one through three, and the first ones were team ministry. We saw that even at this early day, this early season in the church, there were people from all backgrounds, all colors, all walks of life, united together as a team. Talked about that in verse 1. Then we saw in verse 2 that these people, this church, was worshipful and God-focused. They ministered to the Lord. They were all, as Peter says, like priests serving the Lord. Absolutely God-focused. And then the third thing we saw was that they were spirit-directed at the second part of verse 2. The Holy Spirit spoke, and they were listening And the Holy Spirit sent Barnabas and Saul for the work that he had. And we saw that the mission is not theirs. It's not the churches. It's not the leaders of the church, but it's God's mission. That's why the Holy Spirit said, set them apart from me because they belong to me. And then I have a mission to send them on. So let's look at verse 4. We're going to see some other characteristics of Antioch that we want here at All Saints. The next one, the fourth one, is that this church was prayerful, missional, and supportive. There's lots of overlap in these things, but this is given to us to study and pray and try to emulate to the best of our abilities. This is actually tying back into verse 3. They're prayerful, they're missional, and they're supportive. Look at verse 3. They fasted, they prayed, they laid their hands on them, and they sent them off. We're going to see in chapter 14, they're doing this again before they appoint elders in the church. They're fasting, they're praying, and they're showing that they support the people that they're laying hands on. It's an act of solidarity. The Lord has spoken, we've got your back, and we're praying for the anointing and the power of the Holy Spirit to be upon you. So it's more than symbolic. Yes, it is symbolic but it's really showing that the leaders themselves and those that they're sending are drawing from and depending on the power of the Lord. They're depending on his presence. Notice where this happens, the context of this happening, being prayerful and missional. Where is it, friends? Is this happening in a parachurch organization? Is it happening apart from the local church? Where's it happening? It's happening in the heart of the church in Antioch. It's interesting. That could go right by our attention here. But this call for these leaders is confirmed by the local church. Think about the implications of that. Not disregarding parachurch organizations or maybe someone who receives a call and they're in a place that may not have a missional local church. But for the most part, the book of Acts is showing us that God works through the local church. As messy as it is, and we're going to see some messiness in a minute with John Mark and Paul having a falling out. But 
nonetheless, the Lord works through the local church. Isn't that right? And we are committed to that here. The idea of being a lone ranger or a maverick missionary or a lone wolf, that is not the way that Jesus designed it. Again, there are exceptions, but by and large, the Lord works through the members of the body of Christ. There's many reasons for that. Accountability, submission to one another, safety. But I've said even humorously, because God knows we drive each other crazy. True? Like all good relationships, some of your best friends, are there moments where you drive each other crazy? You're not seeing it the same way. You've been friends for so long, you're so comfortable that you can say this and that to that person and they're like, ah, you drive me crazy, but I love you, right? That's how it is with the local church. We love each other, we have each other's backs and the Lord somehow in the great mystery of the body of Christ uses us, but we don't run from one another, we run to each other and we work through our stuff together and then God uses us on mission together, amen? Man, I love this church. And this church is remarkable in that sense. This room is full of people with stories that have the opportunity to go, I'm out of here. That person really has bothered me. I am bolting. But instead, you stay, you stick it out, you work it through, and you experience the richness of deep relationship with one another. That's what's happening with these folks here. Notice who was sent out. Verse 4 and following, how many were there sent out? Two initially, right? Does that ring a bell anywhere else? Maybe earlier in the book of Luke, around chapter 9, chapter 10, who else sent out people two by two? The Lord Jesus, the greatest missionary and missionary church planter that ever lived. So even the text here is showing us that these leaders were following the model of Jesus. That you don't get sent out one by one, but you get sent out two by two, just like the original disciples. What's wonderful about this, we'll see in the rest of the book, the story is fascinating. They end up being traveling companions and their safety on the road as they're traveling. They have people that are ready to jump out and steal their stuff and harm them. But if you're two or more together, then there's safety in that. It's also interesting because they're in a Jewish context. In order to verify the authenticity of the message, you needed two or more witnesses. So you had Paul and Barnabas going out and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and there's two of them or more, right? A fifth thing here found in verse 5. Man, it's hard to not just drill down deeper and deeper into each one of these, but this fifth one is there's mentoring and discipling that's happening. If you see the end of verse 5 there, you see it. So you've got Paul and Barnabas, and then John. That's John Mark assists them. He's going to go on to be the author of Mark's gospel. He's a young man. He's friends with the apostle Peter. And he joins them, and in a sense, we get to see Paul's regular practice. 
He's always dragging young people into situations. I think we have two letters about this very thing where he's looking to Timothy, who probably is 20 to 23 years old, and he's saying, Timothy, the Lord has appointed you to be the leader of this church. We've got elders here to help you, but you're the leader that God has appointed, and don't let your youth get in the way. You are the one, you are the man that God has chosen. And so this is a practice of Paul from the beginning to take young people with him to be assistants in their work. I've got a map up here so we can see from Antioch where they're going. They're arriving at Salamis. Can you see that? Let your eyes adjust there. You can see on the upper right, Antioch, number one, they're making their way to Seleucia, which is a port town about 15 miles from there, and then they're going to jump on a boat and go to Salamis. And so they're journeying 12 miles and 100 miles at a time. But the point was they were doing this together, and John Mark is joining them, this young man. He's a cousin of Barnabas, so he's with Paul, he's with Barnabas, he's an acquaintance of Peter, the scriptures show us in 1 Peter 5.13, and he accompanies Paul and Barnabas. There's a point to this, so you can listen up. He's going with them, but then we're going to see next week that he actually deserts them at Perga. So once they get on the island of Cyprus and they move up there, we'll see John Mark bails out on the ministry trip, and it does not go well with Paul. Paul is frustrated with him, and he's angry. And the text doesn't show us, why did John Mark bail? We're not sure. Did he get sick? Did he get homesick? Was he irritated by Paul? We're not sure. But the text is showing us, this is the beauty of the Bible. We get to see things in the raw. They had a falling out. Again, we'll come back to this. But then later on, And this is beautiful. Paul and John Mark work through it. And so we hear in 2 Timothy 4 that Paul actually, while he's in Rome in prison, asks for John Mark to come visit him. So there's some reconciliation and some friendship. It's a beautiful thing. But the point of all this is Paul and Barnabas took a young person with them and said, hey, come join us in the journey See what it's like to proclaim and demonstrate the gospel of the kingdom and to plant churches. It's a beautiful picture. Now we're talking about this quite a bit because God is moving among our young adults. And we're grateful. And we want more. And we want the Lord to entrust them to us. And we want to be a training and sending base for young people. To send them out all over the region all over the country, all over the world, like Jack. And so you and I who are older get to prayerfully mentor and disciple the young people, right? We're just beginning this endeavor here. And so it's a unified effort, right? So even if we're talking about what God's doing among the young adults, we recognize God is on the move from the youngest to the oldest in the whole church. Amen? All of us. But if you're not in your 20s anymore, then you get to say, Jesus, how do I serve the young people? Because it's the way of Scripture. 
We're going to talk about this in November because we're actually going to have a whole Sunday where we're highlighting what God is doing with the young adults. And we're going to look at some verses that talk about the spirit being poured out on the youth and on the older folks, but how they work together. And that's what the Lord wants for us, right? And I've said this before, but praise God that we have young people in the church. God is working in the kids they're learning about spiritual formation. They're learning the Bible. They're learning the basics. God's on the work with our, on the move with our middle schoolers, with our high schoolers, and with our young adults, and we're grateful, right? You grateful? I certainly am because I'm thinking a whole lot these days about this local church 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now. And that's what we need to think about. We need to think about this church, not over the next year or two, which we do, but we need to think about the longer-term plan. Are we raising up the young people so that when we're old and we die, they're carrying on what God has started here, and they're, and they're going way beyond where we are now. Is that true? So they stand on our shoulders, and what do they say? Our ceiling is their floor. We want all of that, and this is modeled in the scriptures for us. The well-seasoned Christians are looking around and saying, who can we pour into? Who do we raise up? What are their gifts? How do we develop them? How do we strengthen them in practical life skills and in their relationships and in their marriages? Amen? I promise I'm getting through today. The sixth thing here, look at verses six through seven. These next two have to do with the word of God. These people in Antioch, the leaders, and then Paul and Barnabas and John Mark, they are word proclaimers. They are proclaimers of the word of God, the whole counsel of God, the gospel of Jesus, his life, death, resurrection, his ascension, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And next Sunday, we're going to get to hear Paul's first sermon that's going to unpack all of this. They proclaim the word of God. And we're going to actually get to see Paul's first recorded sermon. But I just want us to take note here for a moment. In this chapter alone, we see how many times the word of God is mentioned. God speaking through the written text or God the Holy Spirit speaking to the people. At verse 2, chapter 13, the Holy Spirit said this. Verse 5, they're proclaiming the word of God. Verse 7, Paul and Barnabas are summoned to hear the word of God by the proconsul. Verses 9 through 12, the word of God is spoken by Paul. It's a word of discipline and judgment. Verse 12, this gentleman, the proconsul, is amazed at the teaching of the Lord. The Lord. I'm speaking in tongues this morning, a little bit tongue-tied. The Lord. I sound like I'm from Liverpool. <clears throat> we are watching a special and watching a series, and they're from Liverpool, and you can't hear or understand really what they're saying, so we had to put the captions on. But I'm speaking like I'm from Liverpool. All right, so you get to see the Word of God is woven through the whole chapter, right? They are intoxicated. They're filled with the Word of God, and that's what we want to be like. Right? But before you become a word proclaimer, what do you have to become? You have to be a word reader. 
a word prayer, a word student, a word obeyer, right? So this didn't just happen that Paul and Barnabas went out and started proclaiming it. They have seasons in God where they've given themselves to praying the scriptures, to meditating on the Bible, to storing it inside of them. And then when the fire of the anointing comes, then they're ready to proclaim it. And the same is true for us, right? You young people, you hear it over and over again here at All Saints. Give yourself to the word of God. Now is the time. You're not too young at all. When you learn to read, give yourself to the word of God. Spend minutes each day in the word of God. Carve out time to sit at the feet of Jesus, Luke 10, and listen to his word. Right? That's the kind of church we want to be. In the coming years, the coming decades, we want this church to be known, marked by That is a biblical people. They are filled with the word of God. They don't just talk about it. They actually want to practice it. So we want to be hearers of the word and doers of the word. We want to obey the Bible, obey the commands, obey the voice of the Holy Spirit through the word of God, but we actually want to practice the stuff that Jesus calls us to do, to pray for the sick, to see him heal people, to cast out demons. He even mentions raise the dead. On that note, Wallace is in South Africa, and I keep getting videos from Wallace and Brian Blount and their team, and God is doing remarkable stuff. Just a little warning, Wallace is going to come home lit up. So prepare yourself. He is out proclaiming the word and seeing Jesus do amazing things. So there's really no excuse. We're all busy. So if you say, well, I'm just too busy to read the Bible. Nah, you're really not. You can make time. Make time in your car. Set something in the bathroom that you can read. There's always time. Even if it's just a few minutes, get those morsels of the word of God in your spirit because you need it through the day. 1 Peter 2.2 says that the word of God is like spiritual milk and it's what nourishes us to grow. It doesn't just happen. If you want to grow and you want to be a proclaimer of the word of God, you got to give yourself daily to the word of God. Amen? So as they're going around evangelizing, proclaiming the word through this island of Cyprus, they encounter a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. And his name means son of Jesus or son of Joshua. It's a common name. And he was with the proconsul. That's the Roman governor named Sergius Paulus. And he's kind of like a court wizard. He's into soothsaying and divining and foretelling the future and politicians listened to folks like this just like they continue to do this is nothing new he's into the occult practices and so we need discernment today and courage amen so i thought i would just take this moment here to lay out a biblical litmus test, okay? Scratch these things down. I'm going to do it quickly, but you can go back and look at it. They're encountering on this early missionary trip someone who's steeped in the occult and having an influence on their local government. 
And the scriptures teach us that there's a test, actually. If someone claims to speak and be a prophet, we evaluate them. There's a biblical litmus test. And the first, Jesus says, we look at someone and the fruit of their behavior. Matthew 7, 15 to 20. There's people that dress up like they're a sheep, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. And he says, look at the fruit of their lives. If they're producing good fruit, that's a good sign. If not, if there's rot, it's a false prophet. A second thing is sound doctrine. 1 John 4, 1 to 3 says, test the spirits. The apostle John is telling the church there, if the person is speaking and says that Christ has not come in the flesh, they have questions about the incarnation of Jesus, then they are teaching false doctrine. What they say must align with the teachings of Jesus and the apostles. A third thing, the person must be submitted to Scripture. 1 Corinthians 14, 37 to 38. Paul says, anyone who claims to be a prophet or a teacher or have any kind of spiritual power must submit to the authority of the teachings of Christ and the apostles. If they don't, they're not recognized. Lastly here, and again, we're seeing this text is immensely practical as we encounter false teachers and false prophets. The last thing here, what they're teaching, does it reinforce the pure gospel of justification by faith in Jesus? Galatians 1, 8 to 9. Paul says, if any person or angel preaches a gospel contrary to the apostolic gospel, let them be accursed. That's what Paul says. Anyone saying that religious works like circumcision or anything can save you rather than God's grace through faith, he says they are severed from Christ and in error. So here they are early on, and you know what? They have a litmus test in their mind. They know Paul is able to discern in that moment that this is not the spirit of Christ. This guy is a false prophet, and he calls them out. And what we have here, lastly, is bold power evangelism. You see it, verses 8 through 12, right? There's a power encounter. you got a false prophet, and the text calls him Bar-Jesus, the son of Jesus, the son of Joshua. also calls him Elymas, which has something to do with him being a magician. He's opposing Paul and Barnabas trying to turn this local governor, the proconsul, away from the Christian faith. <laughs> Look at what Paul says to him. Look at verse 9. And this is the first time he's actually called by his Greek name, his Greco-Roman name, Paul, and he'll be Paul from here on out. Before this, it was Saul. He has some harsh things to say to him, basically calling him out. And this resembles some of those power encounters in the Old Testament. Elijah versus the prophets of Baal and others. It is a clash between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness. And Paul says it like it is. I wouldn't encourage you to go out and call someone the son of the devil. An enemy of all righteousness. This is Paul and his early apostolic authority here. But he knew something from the Lord. The Holy Spirit was speaking to him had the word of God in his mind, and he was calling this dude out, called him a villain. He said, why are you doing the opposite of what John the Baptist did? John the Baptist came and paved the way, made it straight for the Lord. 
you're doing the opposite. You're making it crooked, and I'm calling you out, and you're going to be blind. And it happened to him. And then the proconsul, the governor, was astonished by the teaching and by the demonstration of power here. Powerful moment. Who else was blinded back in chapter 9? Think of anybody? The same dude who's calling out the false prophet was blind. So it's interesting, a lot of the same language, probably inside he's going, I've been blinded before. I was blinded by the glory of God in the face of Christ. I was struck. And that same thing's getting ready to happen to you. Darkness is going to come over you. And you'll have the opportunity to repent. The text doesn't talk about that necessarily. But it is a power encounter. Friends, we want power encounters. Do you? You want them? While we're out, we want to share the gospel and the love of God. But we also want to pray for people and see the power of God touch people. So that it's not just words, but it's a demonstration of the spirit and power. Amen? So next week, we are going to look at the rest of chapter 13 and what a chapter this is. Just want to keep saying it. Let's lean into being a church like Antioch and let's pray and let's fast and let's be a church that ministers to the Lord, receives from him. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Would you help us live it and practice it for your glory? Amen.